There we go. We'll get to that in one verse. And Gimel. It can also mean camel foot. It can mean gather, walk. Do good to your servant, and I will live. I will obey your word. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. I am a stranger on earth. Do not hide your commands from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. You rebuke the arrogant who are cursed, and you stray from your and who stray from your commands. Remove from me scorn and contempt, for I kept your statutes. The rulers sit together and slander me. Your servant will meditate on your decrees. Your statutes are my delight. They are my counselors. My counselors. Okay, we got a couple of prayer requests here. Let's see. Uh, Sue, uh, we prayed for Sue a while ago, and she, she had no problems, but she is having bad internal problems again, and she's got an endoscopy coming tomorrow. And uh, then John Slater, who I said on Sunday had some heart issues. He had two stents put in because of 80% blockage. So he's up to eight stents, and I said between him and Jay, we could start a stent factory. But uh, Kathleen is having some kidney troubles, and she thinks uh, she might be on the mend, and she sent an email this morning, and her husband got her some, what was it? Something unexpected, uh, some type of Hormel chili or something, and uh, cranberries, cranberry juice, and she says she's feeling a lot better. I think it was like Hormel chili, I don't remember what, but something like that. And then uh, Bruce and Jackie, who are in Missouri, have been having multiple sicknesses in the family. It's that time of year, and they're just miserable. So uh, Les, who does the Les Rick every Sunday, he is praying for a possible opening to advance his book with uh, Fox 13 and uh, Tampa, and he'd like prayer about that. Yeah, and then um, let's see here. Kim, I just got this. Kim is struggling with anxiety over several very tough issues, including finances. And uh, maybe her anemia is exacerbating it, she thinks. But she, uh, I, as soon as I read that, she says, I'm struggling with anxiety, is what did Paul write? Be anxious for nothing. For nothing. That's right. So that's not to put her down. That's to help her reprioritize and say, you know, Lord, you're in total control over this. You are sovereign. And uh, just I want to give you my anxieties, and I want you to uh, just be with me through this. And I know she feels that way. She wouldn't ask for prayers if she didn't. But... When you're anxious about things, especially financial, it can really ruin your your health. It can ruin your you know fellowship with your family and everything else. So I would pray she'd hand that to the Lord. And then we've got the list of people here that uh, are are in need of Jesus, and so uh, add them into our prayers as well. And uh, let's see here. Um, we have. Um, one thing I said I'd announce, there's a church here in Sarasota, Southside Baptist, which is just right off of 41, about Goldenrod Street. It's just back one street right off of uh, 41. You can see it from the highway. And uh, uh, they are having a widow's care luncheon on March 3rd at 11 a.m., just in case anybody wants to go to that. And they had a pastor meeting, you know, invited any pastor that wanted to come yesterday or two days ago. I couldn't make it, but that was nice of them. So... Anyway, I thought I'd announce that, and then um, we'll go ahead and go to Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we certainly thank you for the chance to bring these issues up and the others. Uh, oh, Akemi over in Japan asked for uh, prayers this morning, and uh, I don't remember what it was, but you do, Lord. And uh, we'd like to add her in there, and anybody else that's having difficulties that uh, uh, is just struggling right now, or maybe they have a praise that they want to hand to you, and Lord, just reside in the prayers and petitions of your people and uh, uh, attend to them according to your great wisdom. And we would pray that you would do this, that they would be built up in you, and that they would be relieved if it's your will to relieve them. 
And Lord, we know that you're sovereign over all things, so we commit uh, these to you, and we just ask that you be with them through it. And Lord, we ask you, bless this time in a, the Bible study tonight, and if there's something that's said tonight which is not in accord with your will, that that would be uh, brought up to the attention of the people here so that nothing contrary to your word would be stated. And we pray this, that you will be glorified, and we pray it in the beautiful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen. All right. Okay. Well, the bridges are not here, so I hope they're okay. They, uh, they had the flu there for a while, and they got better. But uh, okay, we'll just go ahead and get started right now with uh, one Corinthians. I'm sorry, two Corinthians six, verse eleven. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide your hearts to our hearts to you. We are not. I'm sorry, I was going to carry on there. <laughs> you were going to carry on. Okay, well, I wasn't even there yet, so you could have carried on anyway. Okay, 611, and then I'll give you my commentary on that, and we'll see what we have. Let me read it again, though, just because I wasn't following to see how close it was to what you had. O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is open wide. All right, and what is the most personal appeal in his letters, Paul directly and openly calls out to the Corinthians. In only two other letters does he directly name his recipients, in Galatians 3, verse 1, and in Philippians 4, verse 15. But this address to the Corinthians is most personal in nature. The term, we have spoken openly to you, is literally, our mouth is open to you. It is a way of saying that a free and full use of language has been imparted to them, holding nothing back. It is his way of saying that everything said thus far has been candid and unreserved, culminating in the words of the previous verses, which show everything that the apostles had gone through for the sake of their hearers, which included those in Corinth. From there, he said, our heart is open wide. More literally, in a Greek rendering of this would be, our heart is expanded. The pulpit commentary helps to explain this by saying, after writing the foregoing majestic appeal, he felt that he had disburdened his heart and, as it were, made room in it to receive the Corinthians unreservedly, in spite of all the wrongs which some of them had done him. The use of the words mouth and heart in the same thought is not unique to this verse. It is also used by Jesus. He says it in Matthew chapter 12 in the negative sense. Let me find that really quickly here. Matthew 12. And in... Verse 34, he says, uh, Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Also, Paul uses it concerning the process of salvation in Romans 10, 9, and 10, a set of verses which we go through almost every single week at one point or another. And last week we went through in detail during the sermon there. But that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So the heart and the mouth. It's, uh, the heart in the Bible uh, is not ever speaking of the literal heart. You won't find a verse, I don't believe, in the entire Bible that speaks of the heart in the literal sense of the organ that it pumps blood. It's more speaking of the seat of reasoning and uh, you know what you would cognitively think with is what they equate the heart with. And then when you speak about uh, you know your... Um, uh, emotions you would speak about your bowels or the innards okay yeah so it's just it's just the way that they use that and you know we do the same thing to some extent when we say oh my heart is hurting today 
and it's actually not our heart that's hurting it's our head but it feels like it's broken in our heart. heart yeah broken heart that's right so heavy heart. heavy heart that's right so life application sometimes it is good to clear out our thoughts to others before we can tell them how much they mean to us paul tenderly corrected his hearers on points of contention but he then moved to his words of love and tender affection for them if we follow this pattern we can get such difficulties behind us and move on with the freedom of hearts which are no longer burdened. So there you go with that. 612, to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. Okay, a little different. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Paul just exclaimed in the preceding verse that the hearts of the apostles were open wide to those in Corinth. In contrast to this, he says, you are not restricted by us. The sense of this is that though their hearts were wide, allowing room enough for loving the entire congregation, there was a restricting of the hearts of the Corinthians, which wasn't allowing for the same affections towards them. And, uh, you know, you may have walked into a church at some point and felt it towards them, or maybe they felt it towards you. It all depends on your attitude when you walk in or their attitude as a congregation. But, you know, sometimes you go into a church and you just meet people and it seems like everybody's everybody is loving you know it just depends it, it, but Paul obviously was having a little bit of difficulty with the Corinthians and he voiced it to them and he's trying to get them to open up towards him but instead he says but you are restricted by your own affections in this he means that they were the cause of their own closing of heart toward the Apostles it had nothing to do with the Apostles at all but it was a chronic problem with their own congregation as I said you're gonna see this you walk into some congregations and it, you feel like you're in a, a morgue maybe, and you walk into some and everybody is loving. So this is a congregational issue that Paul is addressing. Through their own errors and misapplications of what Paul and the others had instructed them, they had gotten off the proper path of doctrine. This caused a conflict to arise between the two parties and had thus caused them to withhold their affections from being as broad as they should be. And, let's see here, for the word affections, Paul uses the Greek word, here it is, splachnon. In years past, some older translations, such as the King James Version, used use the unfortunate word bowels to translate it. This is a regrettable and actually a meaningless way of translating the Greek. Albert Barnes explains the proper rendering of this word, splachnon. The word here used is, and he uses the uh, word right out of the uh, text itself, splachna commonly means in the Bible the tender affections. The Greek word properly denotes the upper viscera, meaning the heart, the lungs, and the liver. It is applied by the Greek writers to denote those parts of victims which were eaten during or after the sacrifice. That's uh, Robinson's lexicon. Hence, it is applied to the heart as the seat of the emotions and passions, and especially the gentler emotions, the tender affections, compassion, pity, love, and so on. Our word bowels is applied usually to the lower viscera, not the upper viscera, and by no means expresses the idea of the word which is used in the Greek. That is Albert Barnes' commentary. It is always good to remember that being captivated by one translation will inevitably lead to bondage of thought. It's far better to put away such teachings that one version is the only one which should be used and to study with diligence what is the true intent of the original language. And I would say that you... Uh, as they say in the original preface to the King James Version, that you should, 
you should, I just had an idea go through my head that is something that I will talk about later. Wow. Um, anyway, um, uh, you... Uh, you should versions. read as many yes. versions as I, possible. I, I, just, I just had a, a thought, and I, I can't let it go. We'll spit it out. Do you attend online? Not you, oh. Mark. Um, the, the guy in the back. What was your name again, Mark? Michael. Are you here visiting? You told me earlier that you were... Uh, where? Does the name Nuke mean anything to you? No. Okay, I, I just had to know. We're, we're supposed to have somebody here, and I suddenly, forgive me, there's somebody that's coming, and I thought maybe I'd been, okay, anyway, we'll, we'll let it go at that. I, I just, it went through my mind, and I, because he's been very quiet sitting in the back there, and we're supposed to have a visitor that, uh, anyway, we'll, uh, we'll go ahead, uh, yes, uh, being captivated by one version, Sorry, I couldn't let that go because I've been waiting for somebody to show up here. Anyway, um, it, when you have just one version of the uh, the Bible that you are tra using as yours, and these are men that translated these things. Men are fallible. I don't care if there's 50 or 60 of them or if there's a 300 on a translation committee. They are fallible. And once they get into an error of one particular word in a translation, that will go all the way through the Bible normally because it will consistently translate it. Okay, now obviously context is important for the translation of a single word okay but uh, uh so you might have a single word that's translated differently in four different places but in when it's, the context is the same you're going to normally translate the same and if you translated it wrong then that carries through all of the uses of that word so as the king james version say in their preface to the original king james version they say that you should study a multiplicity of translations for finding out the proper sense of the meaning the intent of either the Hebrew or the Greek or even the Aramaic. Hello, how are you? And uh, so anyway, there you go with that. Um, so we don't want to get stuck in one version, all right? And then we want to study with diligence, as I said, what the true intent of the original languages is. Now, any translation, I mean any translation, unless it is purposely manipulated, you are going to be able to get a good sense of what is being said. You may have doctrinal errors, though, based on that. And so, like I said, when I do a sermon on Monday, I've got usually 26 translations of each verse that I'm looking at open. Then I'll go through them if it's a complicated verse. This week I had a verse that uh, I probably spent maybe an hour or so on. It was Deuteronomy 1, uh, I think it was 126 or 36. I'll tell you right now. And it just kind of goes along with what we're talking about. But Deuteronomy, uh, hang on one second here. And... Um, so finally, I, nobody translated it the way that I thought it should be translated. And um, let's see here. Uh, yeah, is it 20? Yeah, 36. Except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it. And to him and his children, I am giving the land on which he walked, because he wholly followed the Lord. Okay, there's something in there that just didn't sit right with me. And I read all the translations, and none of them did what I thought was correct. And so I uh, emailed Sergio, he was busy, and he came back with an answer the next morning, I think it was, and uh, he said, it cannot be what you're submitting because of the clause that you're picking out. It's because he wholly followed the Lord. It begins with the word ya'an, because, and so it can't be an independent sentence. And I said, I wanted to talk to him, not just send it by you know, email, because I wanted to be precise, but we finally, what I did is I took the whole paragraph and I put it in there and I said, you have this and this and this is an insert thought. So this beginning 
is Moses speaking and this ending is Moses speaking, but the insert part is the Lord speaking. And so what he did, and this will be in the sermon because I'm going to include his comments so people can see how thorough he is. He went to the Dead Sea Scrolls and he read the entire passage, one fragment at a time from the Dead Sea Scrolls. And then he got to that verse and it was missing the information he needed. And so he had to punt back to the Masoretic text, which he did. And there's something in there, I think it's called a Zakhar Gadol. It's a certain mark. And he said, that mark seems to indicate exactly what you're saying. So the English translations, none of them have what is implied in this this mark that is in there and he says so he agrees that it is correct and so I felt better about that because I don't want to present something I think is wrong especially with having a really limited knowledge of the Hebrew but I knew what was being said wasn't and the reason why is because it goes back to Numbers chapter 14 I think it's verse 14 or somewhere let me go there and the, it, the whole point is no it's not verse 14 it's Numbers 14 something and um, uh, yeah, but my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land where he went and his descendants shall inherit it. That's 1424. So if you compare 1424 of Numbers and Deuteronomy 136, do your study tonight, and if you can find out why it bothered me and I spend an hour on that verse, then you'll know what I was thinking. Okay? If not, then just wait for this sermon. It'll be out in 10 weeks, and we'll talk about it. But I'm going to... That's right. It's 10 weeks. Yeah. I'm going to... But I will... It's actually 9, though. Now, the reason why is I, I, we did not do a Christmas sermon. Remember that? But I typed a Christmas sermon, so now I'm down to only 9 weeks in advance. But next Christmas, I don't have to type a Christmas sermon. And so I, we'll be back to 10 weeks in advance. But it'll be 9 weeks from now. And, uh, but hopefully the Lord will be back before that wall will be out of here. I'm thinking so. we're going to get this on Sunday. I forgot. Yeah, No, it won't be this Sunday. It'll be a while. But if you go do a study on Deuter Numbers 14.24 and Deuteronomy 1.36 and see if you can find out what was bothering me because I spent a lot of time on that. And I went back and forth and back and forth. And, and you know, it was it, it's tedious because when you're on one verse and you might have... I wanted to finish the chapter, and we had to get down to, I think, verse 46, so I had 12 verses, and you're spending an hour or two hours on a single verse. That causes stress because, you you know, you don't have just the verses. You've got to analyze them, and then you've got to put them into a form. And so, But it was worth it. And like I said, it was a couple days later, Sergio came back with that, and we had uh, a good time doing that. So I'm going to put his entire commentary in that. And unfortunately, it's going to make the sermon a bit longer. It's going to be about... 10 minutes longer than a normal sermon, but the good thing is that the tourist season will be over, so we won't have a tough drive back home oh. afterward. So there you go with that. There's good and there's bad with the whole thing, but anyway, that the point I'm making out of all of that, getting around there, is that read, you more. read more versions. Read more versions, and if you can, if you can do your own study in the Greek and Hebrew, and I will say this, I said this to my friends that were visiting just a, a couple of, uh, week, last week they were here, and um, uh, if you take like a, a Hebrew one in college or a Greek one in college, they have a saying, he knows just enough to be dangerous. be dangerous. That's correct. Because you have a little bit of knowledge about translation. You have a little bit of knowledge about the structure of the language, but you don't have enough to make competent judgments on a text. And so you want to be careful not to say, well, I know Hebrew and Greek well enough where I can just simply sit down and start making my own translations. That's not a wise thing to do, and that's why I always defer to Sergio if I have something that is that complicated. And uh, so, anyway, and it's good because he's very studious, too. And because of that, it, it makes life, one, fun, and it makes it, two, uh, double fun. 
Well, there you go. Okay, um, let's see here. Life application. Our hearts will uh, become hard to other Christians because of our own faulty doctrine. When this occurs, it is always wise to evaluate ourselves and what we believe, knowing that we could be in the wrong. Paul shows the Corinthians this so that they will lovingly reach out in order to be corrected and return to a state of true fellowship with others. Yes? Dennis Prager. Prager we need to pray for that guy, don't we? Yeah. He's a great mind. He, he said, I know Hebrew as well as I know English. Huh. And he's got something new coming out. And he was on, I think it was on the, the Fox thing where they have those three people in the morning. But I, I didn't pull it up and look at it. But you know, maybe he could tell you about this also, the Hebrew. Well, he could. But now you got to remember that biblical Hebrew is far different than, than modern Hebrew. It's far different. And Sergio will tell you, the guys that go to the Western Wall and they have their, their Bibles in the Hebrew and they're, they're praying and reading it, they can't read. and They have no idea what they're reading. He says, none of them. They don't know what they're reading, so they're making a show just the way the Bible would say. So uh, it, it's vastly different. Now, you can get a sense of the Hebrew from the modern Hebrew. And what uh, one of the things that Sergio said to me, not in the letter he sent me, but just in the comments as he was reading the Dead Sea Scrolls, is he says, Rhoda and I are reading the text right now, and he says, it's such a joy to be able to go back and read something from 2,000 years ago. And I didn't know at the time he was reading the Dead Sea Scrolls. I just thought he was reading, you know, the, the Hebrew Bible. And he says, and we can understand it because of one man named Eliezer ben Yehuda. That guy revived the Hebrew language. If it wasn't for him, there would be no Hebrew language in the modern world today. And so uh, if you go to Israel, you'll see streets called you know, Ben Yehuda Street or whatever. I mean, he's just like a hero there because he, through circumstances, ended up in Israel. I think his wife had tuberculosis or one of these things where she needed to have the climate. And I think originally they wanted to come to the U.S. I may have the story wrong, so don't make a squiggle. But anyway, they ended up in Israel. And he said when they got there, we are going to speak nothing but Hebrew from now on out. And he revived that language exactly as the Bible said it would in the book of Zephaniah. I will restore to you a pure lip among the people. And sure enough, it happened. So that's great stuff there. But uh, anyway, um, here they were reading that. And it is different. So you have, you have to learn the differences between the, the biblical and the modern Hebrew. But there's enough of it where you can get the sense. It's like reading, uh, speaking modern Greek and Koine Greek you know, the biblical Greek, they're different. And as a matter of fact, when I, I had a question about, I was doing something out of Revelation for a Bible class a couple years ago, and we had some Greek guys that were putting in the tile at the mall, right? And so I asked them, I said, can you help me out with this? And they, they had no idea. They, they had no idea. And as a matter of fact, when they got to uh, the Lake of Fire, Limnintom Poras, he said, the, he called it the... Um, Something like, yeah, the bath, yeah, the bathtub of fire or something. It was some funny, and he was like, I, I don't, that makes no sense at all. So there is a difference. But Dennis Prager, the reason why I say we need to pray for him is because he has been told the gospel, I'm sure, many times. He has Christians speak on his show all the time, and yet he does not know the Lord. He is a Jew that is stuck in Judaism. And so we, you know, we would hope that he would meet Jesus. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's, lots of people yeah. pray for him. Yeah, I bet they do. But anyway, he's a great mind, but sometimes having a great mind and being very sound in, in philosophy and, and knowledge can actually be a hindrance to a walk with the Lord. You know, Paul makes that point about the noble of this world and the lies of this world. So we would pray that uh, uh, he would be such an effective person if he would come to Christ. I mean, he, he, he just would. But 
Anyway, there you go. That's him. So 613. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. Okay. In the previous two verses, Paul has noted that the apostles had opened their hearts wide to the Corinthians and that they had not withheld their affections for them. On the other hand, the Corinthians had withheld theirs. Now Paul notes that what would be good in return for the same, as he says, some translations say for a recompense. But this leans towards implying a repayment. Rather than a repayment, Paul is simply asking for a like return. The NIV does a good job with the thought using the words, as you said, a fair exchange. As if in a fair exchange, he says to them, you also be open. This is no different than any other social grace which is given out. If someone says to their neighbor, hi, Tom, all he would expect in return is a hi, Paul. And with each different level of openness between friends, one would expect there to be an exchange in kindness for a kindness shown. And in the case of Paul and the believers in Corinth, there is an added reason for this, which is implied in the words, I speak as to children. Paul was, as if it were, a spiritual father to the congregation. In such a relationship, one would expect the children to give their parents the same kindness that the parents had given to them. If not, then the relationship would be unbalanced and would easily become an unsatisfying one. Paul uses the same father-child metaphor with them in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 14, and he also conveys it to those in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 11. He considered the churches he established as his family and those in them as his own dear children. To the Galatians, he speaks in a very similar manner concerning the idea of becoming like him in Galatians chapter 4. Here's what he says there in Galatians 4 and verse 12. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. All right, so there we go with that. Paul was a man of passion for those he shared the gospel with. He cherished them and he desired them to reciprocate with the same feelings of affection. Life application on this, one-sided relationships will eventually wear out the one who is always on the giving side. Unfortunately, the giver is often unwilling to ask for a fair exchange of affection in fear of losing the relationship. But Paul shows us that it is right and proper to speak one's heart in times like this in order to find a happy balance in such matters. All right, 614. Now, oh. he uses the word us there. Yes. So, so is Timothy uh, being a vital part of this? I would say probably Timothy. Who did he introduce at the beginning? Yeah, Timothy. Timothy. It's got to be Timothy. Yeah, but it may be all of the apostles because he was earlier talking about the apostles in general. Um, we have spoken openly to you. Um, it may be all of the apostles, but certainly it's Timothy and him at least. Okay, for some reason I have in my mind all of the apostles, and I'm not seeing... Well, yeah, no, sir. It's not, it's not just him, definitely. Yeah, so it's, it's at least him and Timothy, and maybe, maybe he's referring to all of the apostles. Okay, 614. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Absolutely. If you turn on a flashlight and it's dark, what happens? Dark goes away. Dark goes away. That's right, okay? After speaking to the Corinthians about opening wide their hearts, Paul now seems to take on a completely different line of thought which some scholars find out of place as if something was later taken out or added. But there's no reason to assume this. 
his last words prior to this verse said, Now in return for the same, I speak as children, as to children, you also be open. With that thought in mind, he simply shows them how to be open. He has gone from petition to instruction. The words of instruction are not to be equally, unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And the word for unequally yoked together is heterozygeo. Heterozygeo. It is a word only found here and nowhere else in the Greek. Okay, It was probably made up by Paul for this very verse. I, when I say in the Greek, I don't mean just in the Bible. It is found nowhere in ancient Greek. So it's a word that Paul... And there are several times you'll see this in the Bible where there is a word that is not found anywhere else at any time in any other writing. And when that happens, you can assume that the person was so excited about what he's thinking about, he actually just makes up word. And we do it all the time. We'll make up words, and I do it. You know, Sergio and I will be sending messages back and forth during the day over something. We'll make up words that we have to try to figure out what the other guy is thinking, you know, whatever. And then, yeah, yeah, pinocular vision. If anybody knows what pinocular vision is, okay, we have a couple people in here that do because we made up a word, pinocular. It's a, it's a uniting of two separate words. One is penny and the other is ocular. So you have pinocular vision. We'll go up and we'll just leave it at that. Okay, helps word studies provides the following concerning this word, heterozygeal. Uh, from, it's from heteros, meaning of another kind or a different kind, and zygos, or zygos, I'm sorry, a yoke joining two to a single plow. So you've got a yoke that's joining two to a single plow, okay? Properly, different kinds of people join together, but unevenly matched, and hence unequally yoked, not aptly joined. And they continue, mismatched is used figuratively of Christians wrongly committed to a partner holding very different values or priorities. For example, that run contrary to the faith, meaning the kingdom of God. That's all helps word studies there. Okay, adding to this, Vincent's word study shows that the word unequally needs to be properly defined. Unequally gives an ambiguous sense. It is not inequality, but difference in kind as in showed by the succeeding words. In other words, if you have a donkey and you've got an ox and they're being unequally yoked, what's going to happen to the donkey? Along. It's going to get dragged along eventually because it doesn't have the strength of an ox, okay? You've got different in kind and they're being put together and it does not work, okay? Paul's mind was certainly on an Old Testament passage which contained this very idea. One is from Leviticus chapter 19 where he says this, all right? Leviticus chapter 19. You shall keep my statutes. This is verse 19. You shall not let your livestock breed with another kind. You shall not sow your field with mixed seed, nor shall a garment of mixed linen and wool come upon you. And then again in Deuteronomy chapter 22, which we should be at sometime this year, maybe early next year, is Deuteronomy 22 and verse 10. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. As I said, if you do that, one of them is going to get worn out, okay? It just makes common sense. But anytime you see something like that in the Old Testament, God is making a spiritual application as well as an actual application. Unfortunately, we can often, and that's why we need to be very careful when trying to figure out typology, because people will more often than not make up typology that does not match what God is trying to say. So you've got to be really careful and you've got to know the whole Bible in order to do that because you can make a typological example of something that isn't correct and it doesn't fit with the rest of Scripture. 
And so that's where a lot of the study comes from when we do that, especially in the Sunday sermons, is this is a word that has a spiritual application. There's no doubt about it, but what is he trying to tell us? And instead of just making something up, I'm going to go and I'm going to review every possible permutation. And you remember maybe a couple times, and especially the book of Leviticus, where I said, I cannot find an application of this, and I'm not going to go fudging it. It's just not worth it. But, you know, some people would just say, oh, that means that. You've got to be careful with those type of things, but God is making these type of applications for us. Anyway, and Paul shows us that right here. In the first example from Leviticus 19.19, it is showing the need to keep from corruption of individual kinds. In the second, it was showing that different kinds have different strengths and are thus designed for different purposes. As I said, to join a donkey with an ox would wear out the donkey or it would frustrate the ox or both. Thinking on a human level, we can make logical comparisons to both Old Testament references. And so in order to direct our thoughts in what he means, he will next ask, five questions which will provide insights into this precept. The first three will contain the argument he is making, and the last two will support the conclusion. Before entering into the questions, it should be noted that the word for fellowship is also found only here in the New Testament. It is metachi, and it means sharing, partnership, or fellowship. It represents a close relation between partners. This is, helps word studies. For example, people sharing something held in common or joint activity, okay? Paul is saying that an unequal yoking arises because of different goals and priorities based on one's worldview. A Christian will have one worldview and a non-Christian will have another. Therefore, for a Christian to marry or to start a business partnership or otherwise closely associate with non-Christians in an important way can only be considered unequal yoking. Later, Paul gives the opposite of such yoking in Philippians 4, verse 3. Let me take you there really quickly. Philippians 4 and verse 3 says, I, and I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written, or whose names are in the book of life. In support of his argument, Paul next, next asks the first of his two five. Uh, I'm sorry, the first two of his five questions. That's my dyslexia getting a hold of me. He begins with, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? The obvious answer is none. That's right. Believers are justified by faith and have been imputed the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The sin of unbelievers remains, and they stand in a state of unrighteousness before God. There can be no true fellowship in such a state. That doesn't mean you can't hang out with your old friends. That doesn't mean that you're not going to, you know, participate in things that are important to you mutually. If you like baseball, for example, which doesn't interest me at all, but if you like baseball and he doesn't go out, that's not what that's talking about. It's talking about, you know, yoking together in a united effort to accomplish something that is of really important value in your life and then you go doing that and you end up having different priorities because you say you know I want to honor the Lord with this and he wants to make more money and the next thing you know you're frustrated and that does not mean and I will say this openly and honestly and I'm sure most of you have seen it that all Christians are going to be yoked equally either okay there are Christians that you find out you've gotten into something with them with and it hasn't worked out at all so it's no guarantee that just because they have a C at the beginning of their name that it's going to be a good thing. And having said that, it's 
not, also not a guarantee that it will fail if you have a Christian with a non-Christian and you're in a business endeavor together. But Paul would ask you to not do that simply because you have different priorities. And in the end, it, if it turns out to be a disaster, the one that is going to suffer is you and your name in Christ. Okay, so it's just best to not do that. Okay, so there you go with that. And um, uh, the next question that he asks is, and what communion has light with darkness? This is a theme which permeates scripture, light and darkness. You see it all the way from the first page of the Bible all the way through, light and darkness, light and darkness. We have something about light and darkness in Sunday, God's predestination and election in Christ. That's our sermon. As I said now, you if you've been in the Bible studies for quite a while, then you've seen this at least twice, and if you've gone through the Genesis sermons, you saw it at least once. But I've added to it, I've amended it, I've done some variations in it to keep it interesting, and one of the things I'll talk about is that Christ is the light. He is the beacon. Do we have free will or do we not have free will? Well, why would we need a beacon if we don't have free will, right? There you go. Okay, so just a little bit of uh, advance on Sunday sermon. If you're a Calvinist, you probably won't want to watch that sermon, okay? But, or if you're a Calvinist that admits you could be wrong, then go ahead and watch the sermon, okay? But here we go. Um, uh, the two are completely incompatible, meaning light and darkness. Where there is one, the other cannot exist. As Christians are light in the unbelieving world, and it is darkness, there can be no true fellowship between the two. A union of the two only causes confusion and breakdown of the intrinsic nature of one or the other. Life application. When making important life decisions, we must always consider our position in Christ first. If it is difficult for marriages to survive, even when both are agreed on their devotion to the Lord, anybody ever had experienced that as a Christian with your Christian partner? It's a little difficult today in our relationship. I see some heads nodding without looking in any particular direction. Okay, if that is true, then how much more difficult will a marriage be when only one is wholly devoted to him? The same is true with business partnerships and any other major aspect of our life where we must entrust our lives to an important goal. Let us first and foremost consider ourselves from a Christian perspective and make our alliances based on that. Okay? 6.15. What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Okay, those are his two next questions. In this verse, Paul continues with his five rhetorical questions. Obviously, when he asks a rhetorical question, he's asking for you to think about it. Okay? They are based on the statement, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. The first question here contains the argument he is making by asking, and what accord as Christ with Belial. The second will support the conclusion by asking, or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? In the first, he uses the term Belial and asks what accord Christ has with Belial. The answer is obviously none. There can be no true accord. Can we help you, ma'am? That's my wife showing up only 45 minutes late, so that's all right. Hello, Miss Garrett. We love you. Um, okay, uh, we'll go back and read that again. In the first, he uses the term Belial and asks what accord Christ has with Belial. The answer is obviously none. There can be no true accord when one is in Christ who is yoked to one in Belial. The word for accord here is symphonesis. It is a word unique in the New Testament, and by simply speaking it, 
one can determine that it means harmony, just like we have a symphony. People are playing in symphony. They're playing in harm harmony. It is the noun form of a verb, which is found six times in the New Testament, and it is the root of our where our modern word symphony comes from. There can be no harmony, no symphony between the two. Rather, there can only be discord. Think of a violin playing, you know, I don't know, Led Zeppelin and another one playing Bach at the same time. It's not going to work. There's no symphony there, okay? This proper name, Belial, or Greek in Beliar, is the Greek, is not found anywhere else in Scripture. However, Belial is used in the Old Testament as a combination of two words which together mean without profit and thus worthless. There are several possible reasons for the name being given as Beliar. The first is that the change from an L to an R is based on the Syriac pronunciation of the word where the L sounded more like an R. Another reason is that the word is derived from Beliar, Lord of the Forest. It would then be synonym as a name for Satan. The second option seems more likely because the premise of the Bible is that we are either in Christ or we are in the devil, okay? Uh, give me a verse where that's confirmed. Anybody? 844 is John, I think. John 8.44. Let me go there and see if Burke is right. If so, you can have a Maserati for the afternoon. Okay? John 8.44. Um, let's see here. John 8.44. You are of your father, the devil. Good job. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. They had never been converted in their hearts to the Messiah coming or came. It doesn't matter And at that point. They had not come to him. They are of the devil. And John, uh, 1 John 3, 8 says that the purpose that the Son of Man was made manifest was to destroy the works of the devil, implying that we are all either in the devil or we are moved to Christ and there are no other options. Okay, So that's probably what's going on here, but it's hard to be dogmatic about something like that, especially when we're speaking about a spirit being and not a dog. But so anyway, the what? Oh, right over there. You just hop on that Maserati and take it for a spin around here, okay? Um, let's see here. Um, next to the Hot Wheels. Yeah, right next to the Hot Wheels. Okay, so uh, Paul's second question is, or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? The answer is, of course, that one has no part with the other. The word part indicates the division of a country or an estate, but what belongs to Christ will not be apportioned out to those who don't believe in him. The unregenerate have their part in this world and then eternal doom. Those who have called on Christ have a heavenly inheritance. Therefore, the two have no part with one another. You see what he's doing? He's using a word that shows inheritance, no part, of, meaning like a part of an estate, not the state of being in Christ, as in being a part of Christ. That's not what that's speaking of. It's speaking of the inheritance which comes from being in Christ. Okay, life application. Paul's questions continue to put the spotlight on our associations. He is asking us to consider our position in Christ and then to evaluate those associations based on that state. If we are to become yoked to someone who has a different set of priorities and allegiances, then there can be no true harmony with them. They will be working towards one goal while we should be working towards another. All right, 6.16. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them, 
walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Okay, there is a slight variation in texts here. Mm -hmm. Instead of we, the Byzantine says you. Okay, We're, you're reading from the Alexandrian side, the Nestle, whatever. No. Anyway, okay, so, and what agreement has the temple of God with idols for you? Are the temple of the living God. We, you, okay? Anyway, Paul asks his fifth rhetorical question here with the words, and what agreement has the temple of God with idols? The word for agreement here is subkatathesis, and it is only used here in the New Testament. He's pulling out all kinds of interesting words for us. It has a kindred verb, which is found in Luke 23:51, and it literally means a putting down or a depositing along with one. Hence, a voting the same way with another, and so agreeing. That's Vincent's word studies there. Throughout the chapter, Paul has demonstrated a mastery over the Greek language with his use of special words to convey his thoughts clearly, accurately, and unambiguously. Then this, is, his question is basically asking, why would you throw your lot in with idols? Why would you do it? In chapter 8, he will speak of conscience and how our actions towards idols and things offered to idols are to be handled. Now, in order to avoid any misperceptions or abuses of what he said, he shows them the folly of being joined to idols. And the reason is explicitly stated, for you, you are the temple of the living God. We are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Because of this, it would be contrary to unite with idols. It would show a divided loyalty, and Jesus himself said that a man can only serve one master. Even the Old Testament shows us this clearly. Time and time again, the true God is set in contrast to the false gods of the surrounding people. A classic example of this is found in 1 Kings chapter 18. Let me pull that out for you. 1 Kings verse 18, chapter 18 and verse... 21. Yes, that's probably what I'm going to get, but I don't know that. Let's see here. Now look, you are, oh no, now look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So Pharaoh king of Egypt is, so is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all who trust in him. Okay, what you were thinking of there is a good verse too. You're haltering between, uh, faltering or whatever between two opinions. Are you going to trust the Lord or are you going to trust Baal? Okay. Today, whom are you going to serve? And, uh, of course, then they had the great showdown, and the priests of Baal spent all morning hopping around on the altar and slashing themselves and calling for Baal. And I love what it says. Nobody listened. You know, nobody answered. And then they're out there hoopering and hollering, and then it says that what's his, uh, Elijah gets up there, and he mm -hmm. says, you know, cover the altar with water. And they do it six times, yeah. was it? I mean, whatever. Yeah. It just completely Soak it. soaked it. Yeah. Right. And then... Oh, he, did, he didn't raise his voice at all. He just prayed to the Lord and down came the fire. So pretty good stuff there. Anyway, um, yeah, great, great story. Great story. Anyway, this is not the first time Paul has told them that they are the temple of the living God. In his first letter uh, to them, he mentioned it also in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where he says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? He repeated the thought in 1 Corinthians 6.19 as well. It is certain that he wanted them to know this and to not forget it. Therefore, in his letters to those in Corinth and throughout his other writings, he warns against mixing with the powers of darkness 
with worldly things and so on. Now, having said that, and before I go on, it's obvious that they were doing this, right? Okay, just as in 1 Corinthians, he's talking about the sexually immoral and blah, blah, blah. And it's obvious that those people are doing those things, right? We know that explicitly in 1 Corinthians 5. These people are explicitly doing things that they shouldn't be doing with idols. Does Paul ever, during any of his writings, question somebody's salvation? Ever. He never does. He never gets up and he says, well, you've lost your salvation because of this. He never does that. Okay? He acknowledges that people can actually do these things as Christians. And that's an important point to uh, remember when you're dealing with finger pointers. People that are so holy that they point their finger at everybody else for all the wrongs that they're doing and saying, how can you be saved when I guarantee you they are as guilty in some area of their life that, you know, as a matter of fact, some of these finger pointers you find out on TV later are the ones that are having, you know, secret lives and stuff and they end up leaving the pastorate because of that. Okay? So, if somebody is there accusing you, he's the old saying, I love the saying, you got one finger pointed at them and three more pointing right back at you. Okay? So, yeah, it, it's just one of those things that we need to remember that people are fallible. And just because somebody is called on the Lord, it does not mean that either their doctrine is perfect or their walk with the Lord is perfect. And so that is why we come to Bible studies. That's why we try to correct people. Okay? I know on social media today, it's almost impossible to say, you know you're wrong in this because all you get is a lot of arrogant fighting back. Okay, but if you try to at least correct people in love and just say, you know, the Bible doesn't say that. People take offense at everything nowadays. You're bound to make them angry, but it's at least worth trying because you don't want people to continue in bad doctrine, but at the same time, there's no point in finger pointing at people that are simply uneducated and need to be corrected. Okay, and this shows us every time we go through these verses, he's correcting these people because these people are doing these things. It's not a bunch of holy people sitting up there and he's just writing a letter for no reason at all. He's writing it for a reason, okay? So we'll go on. And in order to show that this was something that had been prophesied about before the coming of Christ, he returns to the Old Testament. The words he selects show that his analogy of us being the temple of God was anticipated long before and that it would, only, would apply not only to the Jews, but to Gentile believers as well. His words are a composite of various verses from the Old Testament and convey the idea without being exact quotes. Three of the passages that were surely on his mind were Exodus 29, 45, Leviticus 26, verse 12, and Ezekiel 37, 27. These are speaking to Israel about the Jewish nation. However, the book of Hosea shows that Gentiles being my people also applies. He deals with that concept more fully in Romans chapter 9. We went through that. It took us a while to get through 9 through 11 of Romans, but it's a very important set of verses, still highly misunderstood to this day. And Romans 9, he was citing Hosea at that time as well. I had somebody email me today and was asking about somebody that, uh, you know, was confused about the, he said, I, I don't, this is the person that he was speaking to, not my friend. This is the person he was speaking to was saying, I don't like the term replacement theology, but I don't agree with the premise that, uh, you know, Israel and the church are one thing, you know, going on and blah, blah, blah. And he was just confused. And I said, the easiest way to resolve this, I don't remember the exact question, in other words, but he was kind of just giving this general thing. I said, the easiest way to resolve this is to simply take the term Israel, just Israel. Do a search on it in the book of Romans. And I sent him that search. I said, here, just take him through this and see where 
any Gentile is ever called Israel. That's all you need to do. Just take Israel. Is Israel ever equated to anybody else other than the Jewish people? And the answer is no. Never. Israel is Israel. The Gentiles are the Gentiles. The church is one body. It has one gospel. There is one people in the church, but there is a difference between males and females. There is a difference between Jews and Gentiles. Okay? When Paul says there is now no distinction between these, he is speaking on a spiritual level. Not on the fact that there are no males and females, because we all know that there are, 2,000 years after Paul wrote that, still males and females. Unless you go to the Episcopal Church on Siesta Key, then you've got a problem. But uh, you see what I'm saying is that we have to always be sure that we do not mix up Gentiles and Israel. They are two distinct entities, and they always will be. But the church is one unit. We are grafted into the commonwealth of Israel. Gentiles are grafted into the commonwealth of Israel, but we are not Israel. Everybody got that? Okay, so uh, that's the best way I can think of when somebody is just stuck on this, not understanding the situation. Just look at the term Israel. Just objectively look at it from the book of Romans. And you can do the whole New Testament in about 10 minutes. It doesn't take long. You will never see Israel called the church ever. Galatians 6, where it says the Israel of God, I hate to tell you, it's not speaking of the church. It is speaking of Israel in the church, the Israelis who are of God, meaning in the church. It's not saying the Jews and Gentiles are one Israel. That is not the case. Okay, so um, where are we going here? Um, I said Hosea. We were talking about Hosea 6.17. And, um, uh, oh yes, okay, life application. Because of Jesus, God has come to live within the people of the world. His Holy Spirit indwells us and he has sealed us for the day of redemption. As this is true, why would we again join ourselves to forms of wickedness which are prohibited in Scripture? Paul's five questions beg us to think on who we are as the redeemed of the Lord and to act in a manner appropriate to that state. Okay, before we go into verse 617, I just have to say it, okay? There's a guy that attends online, and he's been in the habit recently of doing a graphic for every Thursday Bible study. Okay, it's just very cute, and what I've been doing is I've been reposting it because, you know, he clicks it on my wall, but it doesn't go out to all my friends, and so I've been taking it and reposting it. Today's was classic. It was. It had all of the people on the Starship Enterprise all gathered around looking in one direction, and then it had a back view of them sitting there watching the superior work. So I want to thank Wade. He just, every time he does one of these, I think that's the best I've ever seen, and then he comes up with something new. So I don't think he's going to be able to top today's. And, and my comment well, that's was... you're a Trekkie. Well, I am a Trekkie. That's why I say that. But uh, my, uh, my uh, comment when I reposted it on Facebook today was the whole universe is watching. <laughs> oh, thank you, Wade. I so much appreciate that. Anyway, go ahead, 617. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father. Oh, you went way over. Oh, yeah, sorry. that's yes, okay. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, it's very close. We'll just leave it with that. 617. Uh, Linda, she is all over you, man. She, she is. She is. Listen. She's tough. If okay. I have a fall, yeah. she will tell She's me that. Help me. Yeah. Yes, she is. Okay, again, in this verse, Paul uses a composite quoting of Scripture. Much of the quote is from Isaiah 52, 11, and 12, but it also draws on Leviticus 11, verse 8. And the ending, I will receive you, resembles the Greek version of Ezekiel 11, 17, and Jeremiah 24, 5. Okay, it resembles, it doesn't mean that's where he got it, but he's taking pieces of... Scripture and he's putting them together. 
implying that every Christian in Christianity is allowed to do that forever. Okay, no. Mm -hmm. Paul is an apostle. He is under the inspiration of the Spirit. He is taking things that he understands make logical sense for his dissertation on Jesus Christ. We cannot pick a piece of a verse here and a piece of a verse here and put them together and say, see, I have sound theology. Please don't do that. Oh, Paul did it. It doesn't matter that Paul did it. Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was selected by him. Go, you know, I will show you how much you need to suffer for my name. I'm sending you to the Gentiles and to the kings. And the, you know, Listen, we are not commissioned by the Lord except to get into our Bible and study it. Okay, so don't do what Paul does. But he is allowed to do this because he's under the inspiration of Scripture. Okay, he begins with, therefore, to show a sequence of thought. In essence, the words of verses 14 through 18 will lead naturally to the result found in this verse. If we come out from among them, meaning the associations warned against in those verses, if we are separate from such things, and if we refrain from touching that which is unclean, if we do these things, then the Lord says, I will receive you. It is through coming near to Christ, trusting in him and receiving his forgiveness that we draw near to God. In doing this, we naturally have separated ourselves from the waves of the world, and thus God draws near to us. God is holy, and we are to draw near to him in holiness. This is done through faith in Christ. If we fail to make this step, then God will not draw near to us, and we will remain unadopted and forever separated from him. So we need to make that initial step, and then after that, every step that we make is either going closer to God or it's further away. But one thing will never happen is we will never get so far away that we are no longer in Christ. You have moved from Adam to Christ, and it is a done deal. We're going to talk about that in detail in next week's sermon, which is um, uh, once saved, always saved, with a question mark, or not so, with an exclamation point. So we'll find out which it is. Okay? Until then, we'll just keep going on. Life application. Sometimes after calling on Christ, we fall back into our old ways. Has anybody ever done that? I guess I could raise both hands. Okay. Um, yes, we go back in our old ways. When this happens, we may feel we have fallen out of favor with God. However, once we are in Christ, we can never be separated from the love of God again. See, I gave you a little hint on what I'm going to talk about in two weeks from now. Okay, we have been, become children by adoption. Let us endeavor to live our lives in holiness, but when we stumble and fall, let us pick ourselves up and press on in his loving salvation, because he is worthy of it. Our, oh, that's the end of the chapter, wasn't it? No, we got one more, 18. Yes. Go ahead. Yeah, I almost ended the chapter. Almost, that's right. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Yes. Paul closes out this chapter with, one more set of thoughts which is derived from several verses of the Old Testament. These include 2 Samuel 7:14, Isaiah 43:6, and Jeremiah 31 verse 9. The term Lord Almighty would be from the Greek version of 2 Samuel 7 verse 8. This word Lord Almighty in the Greek is Pantokrator. Anybody know what that means? Panto means all, right? Like, yeah, Krator would be the uh, yeah, he's the sovereign creator, okay? Uh, Paul uses it here, and then it is used again only in Revelation by John. There he uses it nine times. It is a title which means ruler of all, ruler of the universe, the Almighty. Paul's words touch the heart of what Jesus came to do for fallen man. Through Christ, 
We are adopted. Our Creator becomes our Father through His work. And to ensure that this term, Father, is not misunderstood as merely a title without the true meaning of the bonds of family, he restates the thought from the opposite angle by saying, and you shall be my sons and daughters. So he's not just making a, you know, a metaphor. He's making an actual connection. God has become our father. We have become his sons and daughters. Done deal. This verse brings us to the complete assurance that our adoption has taken place because of Christ. And it is one which bears the full honor of having been accepted into a personal family relationship by the ruler of the universe. He has become our adopted father. If nothing else should stir our souls to gratitude for what Christ did, this certainly should do it. How marvelous is God's plan of salvation that we should be called sons and daughters of the living God. And I can tell you, you know, I know that there are people that have children that they don't like, and there are children that don't like their parents. And I know that happens in natural families, and it happens in families where children are adopted. But I can tell you that I have two children, and they were both adopted. One was adopted from Japan, one was adopted from the Philippines, and I have never, never thought of them as anything but my own children from the day that I first held them in my hands. It's never been, there's never been a thought other than the legal aspect of having brought them into my family, that they're anything. Now, if that is the case with a guy like me that has fallen and completely imperfect in every way, how much is it to God who has said, I have adopted this person as my son or my daughter, okay? I can tell you with personal experience that no matter what happens with those children, they may get cut off from the inheritance. They might not get anything, if, but they will always be my children. My wife's laughing about that. I wouldn't do that to them either, okay? Anyway, I'm just having fun with that, but you, you understand the, the point there, is that as much as I love my children, having adopted them, I don't love them a billionth as much as God loves you because of Jesus Christ. It is a done deal. Anybody that can't see that is really struggling with their own personal issues, which they have now inserted into their analysis of Scripture. I can't see it any other way. Okay, life application. The bonds of family hold us to the Creator. Be assured that if you have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, that you will continue to be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Nothing in all of heaven or earth can separate you from the love of God, which is found in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Okay. We're in a new chapter. Yes, we are. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting <coughs> holiness out of reverence for God. Okay, that's almost identical, except this says fear of God. Therefore, is given at the beginning of this chapter, asking us to reflect on what has thus far been presented in verses 6, 16 through 18. The promises that Paul cites there are for those who are willing to set aside that which is unclean in order to be acceptable to the Lord and to be considered a true child of God in right standing with him. Go back and read those three verses in order to reflect on this, therefore. And so, having these promises, Paul's words, having these promises which have been presented, Paul calls the recipients of his letter, Beloved. It is a term of endearment, probably used to temper the note of stern warning in his words. It is what a father may say when speaking to his disobedient son. By adding in a term of endearment, it will help calm any tension between the two. And after that, more guidelines can then be given, just as Paul does here. Peter, we're going through Peter in the morning studies right now, 
And Peter uses the term beloved again and again and again. He did it in the one that I typed this morning, which means it'll come out in 10 more days. But he does another one of those. Uh, we'll get to it on Sunday. Yeah, it's just another one of those life coincidences that I didn't realize until this morning. Uh, it, the commentary that I'm publishing this Sunday, which is every day I've done this for how many years, right? So it wasn't like I could have done this because I've been typing these commentaries for years and years. And I've gone one verse at a time. Well, the verse that I am typing on Sunday morning which is 2 Peter 3, verse 9, publishing on Sunday morning, is in the sermon from no. here. So it just happened. So I decided that on Sunday, after I've got any corrections taken care of, I'm going to print it off, and we'll just read that as a part of the sermon too. I love when that happens, and it happens way more often than I could ever possibly. It's just amazing how often that happens. We'll you know, have something, uh, a psalm being highlighted in the sermon, and it'll be the psalm that he reads that week. And once again, we just go one psalm at a time. You know, it's not like we plan these things, but I just love when that, it's like God confirming his word to you. It's beautiful. God's beautiful. Like for sure. Yeah, he's, he's just wonderful. Anyway, I've lost my place. Um, uh, let's see here. Um, uh, by adding in, uh, yes, okay, he says, uh, we just got done, uh, he added in a term of endearment, and now he's giving more guidelines. Okay, he says, let us clean ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. That's Paul's words. All of us need to constantly work towards purifying ourselves as we walk in this sin-stained world. Jesus gave us an example of this on the night before his crucifixion. During that encounter, he said, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. That's John 10, verse 13. By using two different words in the Greek for bathed and wash, he was telling us that salvation is a done deal. We are purified unto salvation once and forever. However, we need to continually strive to wash away the impurities which come into our lives as we carry on in this earthly existence. It is the same thought which John later writes out in 1 John chapter 3. He says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So we're purified by Christ, but we need to continue to be purified in our walk with Christ. Okay, everybody got that? Where is that symbolism found explicitly in the Old Testament? We've already done it, so it's something we've already done. It's either in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, or Numbers. No, the, the, the purification. It's no, believe it or not, it's an exodus. In the construction of the tabernacle, there was one implement in between the altar where they sacrificed and the tent, the, the, the laver, the, the laver. That's right. And if you go back and rewatch that sermon and think on what it is picturing, all of the, it's the only one that's not noted as being moved. It's the only, there's all kinds of things about that labor that is showing us our sanctification, our continuing washing as we're walking in this dirty world. And so that is it. explicit. I don't care if it's a different, you know, oh, that's Old Testament sacrificial stuff. It is explicit that that is what is that pointing to in the New Testament. Everything under that Old Testament points to something Christ is doing in the New. Everything. Okay, so um, let's see here. We are saved, after reading 1 John 3, 3, we are saved once and for all time, but we are to constantly be purifying ourselves as we continue in our saved state. The end goal of this process is declared by Paul. It is to be perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That's his words. The word for perfecting indicates bringing something to an end or to finish something. 
We are to constantly strive to bring in holiness until it is all that is left. And this is to be done, as Paul says, in the fear of God. Just as a child shows a respectful fear to his father who is trying to steer him in the right direction, we are to show a much greater reverential fear toward our Heavenly Father. We are to strive to be like him and not flaunt our sin in his face. Rather, we are to abhor it and to work to put it behind us once and forever. In Romans 12, verse 9, we are admonished to abhor what is evil and to cling to what is good. The race is set before us and we should strive to do our best in it, just as Paul is recorded as doing in Philippians chapter 3. Let me take you there. Philippians, Ephesians, Philippians 3, 12. He says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Oh, man, marvelous. Life application. God has saved us to join him in the eternal ages ahead. In doing so, he asks us to turn from our sin and to purify ourselves from all unrighteousness. What a terrifying corruption we have in our hearts that would keep us from accomplishing this to the very best of our abilities. So pray for strength and wisdom to be obedient to his call. Okay, number two. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, and we have exploited no one. Okay, this one says open your hearts to us, which is a completely different meaning than make room. You could already be in there, just need a little room. So I don't have the Greek. In, uh, we'll see what I say first. Paul now makes an emos, a most emotional appeal to his beloved brethren at Corinth. He begins with the words translated here as open your hearts to us. The words your hearts are inserted by the translators. The word open means, ah, here it is, to make room. See, yeah, there you go. So open is a less precise you know, that's why I like that I do these commentaries instead of just doing it off the top of my head. It's because I've gone through it and I've... Okay, anyway, um, let's see here. And so the thought is, make room for us in your hearts. They had, they had once made sufficient room for Paul and the other apostles, but through infighting, divisions, and so on, they had closed them off. Paul is begging for this to be undone. Following this appeal, he justifies his request by stating three thoughts in rapid succession. In the Greek, each begins with the term no man. Thus, no man is in the emphatic position. In essence, no one we have wronged, no one we have corrupted, no one we have cheated. By stating it this way, he is intentionally showing that no individual can lay a charge against them, much less the whole. They have acted in a blameless manner toward all people and each person. His first of three thoughts is, we have wronged no one. This may be a refutation of any charges of greed which have been levied against him or any of the other apostles, as if having swindled them in some way. The, they also proclaimed only the truth of the gospel without adding in anything which would defile it. Each person was treated in the same caring way, and no individual could come forward and state that they had been individually mistreated by them. Secondly, he says, we have corrupted no one. This word carries the sense of defilement. There was nothing impure in how they acted toward 
any person. There were no sexual advances made. There was only that which could be regarded as pure and undefiled in their attitude and treatment of each and every person they encountered. And then finally, he says that we have cheated no one. The word used here for cheated is used only by Paul in 2 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians. It adds in the concept of seeking gain or exploiting another, which isn't specifically implied in the other two verbs. There was no hint of acting in a deceptive manner in order to obtain personal gain. In these three examples, Paul has wisely placed no one in the emphatic position to show that no individual could come forward and say that he had. I may not have been cheated, but I'm sure that he cheated someone else. If that were true, then someone else would have the ability to come forward at the reading of the letter to show that he had been wronged. In writing to all, he has also addressed each person individually. Life application. How good it would be if we could all make the same claim that Paul has made. This is especially true with our spiritual leaders. Instead of defrauding the flock, pastors and other spiritual leaders should be building them up and tending to them with gentle care. Okay, verse uh, 7 3. But before you give it, uh, Steve, have you heard it all from Rick? No. Okay, we've got somebody that's out on a cruise right now, which this doesn't seem like the right time in human history to be taking a cruise, if you ask me, but he's out there, so we'll just hope that he doesn't get quarantined in some port somewhere. If you hear from him, let us know, please. Okay, go ahead, uh, verse 7 3. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. Okay, this one's a little different, but not enough to reread. Paul just said to the Corinthians, open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. Having said this, he must have suddenly thought, they may misperceive these words as a note of condemnation, assuming that I meant that I am responding to a specific accusation against us. To ensure they take his words in a general rather than a specific manner, he says, I do not say this to condemn. Some translations insert you at the end of this thought. I do not say this to condemn you, thus making it sound specific. However, you is not in the original, nor does it seem to be the intent. Instead, he is leaving his words vague in order to avoid specificity, and so they are to be taken in a general sense only. Continuing on, he says, For I have said before that you are in our hearts. He could be referring to his first epistle, or even to his words spoken directly to them while he was with them. However, he gives a general sense of this thought twice so far. First in 3.2, he said, um, You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. And then in verse 6, 11, and 12, O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is open wide. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. He also conveyed this same thought in Philippians 1, verse 7, where he says, Philippians, Ephesians, Philippians 2, 1, verse 7, Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me, grace. Let's see here, where was I? Okay, Paul carried his flock with him wherever he went, and he treasured them in his heart like a father who loves his own son, so much so that his love for them extended to the thought that they were to die together and to live together. That's his words. Paul was willing, if necessary, to give up all for his beloved brothers. 
If it meant spending the rest of his life with them and eventually dying with them, he would even do that in order to establish them in Christ. Certainly, you know, I have to say this. I, it, I was emailing with Isaac in Uganda either this morning or yesterday. I think it was this morning. And I said, Isaac, I would love to come and personally meet you. I would love to do that. And I don't think it will ever happen because what I just said Paul feels about the Corinthians is how I feel about the church here. I don't mind going over to Israel for a couple days like I did last year, and I'm planning on going again this year. But to have an extended, you know, or several trips a year would kill me because this is my home, this is my family, and this is where I feel that I should be. So, uh, you know, I, I will try and endeavor to only take one Sunday off throughout the years ahead just because that's what, and I can see that that's how Paul feels about that here. And it just came to mind, so I thought I'd tell you about that. That's my heart for all of you here. Is that, and that doesn't, that's not limited just to the church. I mean, we've got the online church too. And we've got people that, I mean, they email me, some of them every day, some of them I hear from time to time, and sometimes I only hear from somebody, you know, just when they have a prayer need or something, but every one of them is important to me. It's something that I feel like they're actually people that, even though I don't see their faces, I actually know these people. Uh, it just, you know, you get a, a distressed email and you want to cry with them, and you get a happy email and you want to rejoice with them. And so this is my family. This is the life that I've been given by God, and I don't want to take advantage of that by going to a lot of places and enjoying myself when we could have somebody represent us that goes to Uganda, like Ray did. Just uh, He went there for 30 days. He's a guy that attends online, and he went over there, and he spent time with Isaac. And, you know, I tell you what happened is, I this is kind of a funny thing, and we'll finish this in a second, but um, I send money, Western Union, to a couple people. I do it to the Satellite Church in Kenya, and I do it to Isaac and uh, you know some other people if they need it. And Western Union stopped. They said, you can't send any more money because there's been fraud out there, and we don't want to be liable for something you have sent. And so I think it was the Department of Justice or one of these. They refer these things to some government agency, and they called me, and they said, well, we understand you've sent money. And uh, we want to make sure that you have not been a person under a scam. And uh, I said, I can guarantee you we weren't under a scam because we just had a person spend 30 days with yeah, the guy over right. there. And he says, oh, he says, you're a pastor. I said, yes, I am. He says, we're so sorry. But, you know, we want people not to be cheated by sure, other people. Right. And so it's smart that they do that. But I haven't been able to send anything Western Union for a while, so I've had to find other ways of getting it there. And guess what? The Lord has provided. We've been able to get the things there to meet their needs and uh, – there's one guy in Louisiana that actually set up a, a uh, fund for Isaac in Uganda. And he's done that. He spent out of his own courtesy. He did that. And so he is able to do this through, you know, I don't know how things are set up, but he's done it all legally. Everything is done. So I, it, it's amazing how the Lord fits things together. And there's always a way of helping people when needed. But uh, uh, I, I'm glad that they did that, actually, because there are a lot of scam people out there. And who wants to think that you're being milked by somebody but uh, you know it was just so nice that Ray went and if somebody I guarantee you if somebody here wants to go to Uganda and have a real experience of a lifetime and probably be blessed more than you will ever bless them go okay he would love to have you Isaac would love to have somebody come over and share with him I guarantee it so there you go with that um, okay Philippians and then um, uh, certainly uh, I'll read that last sentence again if it meant spending the rest of his life with them and eventually dying with them he would even do that in order to establish them in Christ certainly he felt that his letters and occasional visits would suffice but he was willing to go to whatever extreme in order to prove his love to those he had evangelized 
He writes a similar note of affection to the congregation at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians, which is chapter 2 and verse 8. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 8. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. Life application, we're going to have to finish because I, let me see how long is the next verse. Oh, um, we're going to do one more. We're going to squeeze it in, folks. Life application, to what extent are you willing to go to ensure that Christ is properly proclaimed? Missionaries need to be funded. If good ones lose their means of support, it may mean that only doctrinally unsound missionaries remain. Has the Lord possibly called you to give up something in order to ensure that a Bible study need is met? Is there a task which needs to be accomplished on Sunday morning left undone because you are unwilling to help out? Continuously evaluate the circumstances around you and be aware of the things that are lacking in which you could help with to be met. You are serving the Lord, so serve the Lord. Okay, 7-4. I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. Okay, this one's different. I'm going to read it. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. It should be noted that Thus far, Paul has been speaking in plural terms, we this and we that. However, he now changes to the first person singular for the first time. In his words, which pertain specifically to himself, he begins with, great is my boldness of speech toward you. This is not an apology for the boldness of his words. Instead, it is a confidence that he is using his words appropriately and in a sound manner. It is the same type of thought that is conveyed to us in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where he says to Timothy in verse 13, for those who have served well as deacons obtain a, is that the right one I want? I hope so. 1 Timothy 3 verse 13 is what I've written down. And yeah, I guess so. Let No, it, it can't be the verse I'm looking for because he's not speaking on a uh, thing of boldness. So. I'm going to let that go. It might be 2 Timothy 3, verse 13. I'm going to go there really quickly because I do that from time to time as well. Um, nope, that's not it either. Okay, well, we're just going to go on. Burke will find something that fits in a minute. Okay, <laughs> after this, he again uses the first person singular and states, great is my boasting on your behalf. Paul has already boasted of the Corinthians in his letters, and he certainly boasted of them in his words to others as well. He was confident that they were on a sound path, even if doctrinal correction was necessary. He was sure that his admonishments would be taken in their proper light and be acted upon accordingly. Thus, he knew he could continue to greatly boast in them. Next, he says, I am filled with comfort. Paul was cons consoled in the fact that they were ready and willing to listen to him. He didn't fear that they would reject his words, but rather respond to them favorably. In verses 5 through 7, he will continue to explain this particular thought to them. And finally, he finishes this verse with, I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. It seems like a paradox to say such a thing. The Greek word exceedingly is hyperparousio. It is found only here and in Romans 5.20. It is a superlative way of saying that his joy is abounding to the highest measure. The words of this clause then are given based on two preceding clauses. 
To be exceedingly joyful in affliction is something unique to the Christian experience. Others may claim that they have it, but it cannot compare to that which the Christians possess. There is a hope which transcends the earthly afflictions we face and which are grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have the same guarantee and thus we can rejoice even in the same times of trial. He gives a note of such joy during affliction in Philippians chapter 2. So I'm going to go there really quickly here. And it says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Life application, and we've got to be finished. If we are truly sure of our salvation then we should despair over anything which comes against us in this life. Sadness, trials, and woe may come, but they should never rob us of our highest joy. Instead, we should have something more deeply instilled in us, which allows us to look to the future with hope and joy. Heavenly Father, we certainly do look to the future with hope and joy, especially for the moment when the trumpet blasts and we're taken to be with you, which is our true hope and our true joy. Lord, we just pray that that day will be soon, but if you keep us here for another thousand years, that is your will and that is your determination, so it will be. It doesn't seem like the world is going to allow that at this point, and so we would hope that we would, uh, we would see you soon, but we just leave that in your capable hands, knowing that you have the times and seasons preserved for you alone and that we are just uh, participants in this great unfolding drama of redemptive history. And we thank you that we are a part of it on the side of Christ Jesus redeemed by him in his precious blood. And we thank you for what he did for us that we could never do for ourselves. What a great God you are. How wonderful you are to be with us, living with us and living in us because of what Christ has done. How good you are. We love you, we praise you, and we exalt you in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.